0: If you uh, have your Bible with you, please open up with me to Mark chapter 15. As I said, we're going through a three week series, kind of a three week build into the Easter um, holiday, Holy Day. And so last week, Zach exhorted on the triumphal entry of Jesus coming into Jerusalem as king, as victor. Um, and. and And then this week, we're going to be taking a look at the crucifixion. And next week, we're going to be taking a look, Zach's going to take a look at the resurrection. Because thank goodness, like, the story doesn't end tonight, right? It's a depressing end to a story. But it doesn't end tonight. So let's get through tonight. Let's get through the cross to the glory of the resurrection. Amen? All right? And so, again, as, as we've got this, this, Zach and I have planned out you know, months and months of series in advance, and so we took a look at behold, this word behold, this idea that we take a look at the Easter story, some, the three major events leading up to the Easter story from the eyes of the crowd. okay, From the eyes, of the, pers- uh, the, the, the perspective of those witnessing it, and sort of how that causes us to worship Jesus. And we do hope that it causes you to worship Jesus. Um, that's our, actually our hope for you every week. That's what our hope for us for every day is that we just hold Jesus in higher and higher regard, that we hold him in a sweeter and more precious place every single day. That's the Christian walk, is that he just becomes more precious to you. And in tonight's exhortation, I'll give away the ending. I want you to just simply approach Easter with a new reverence and sort of a new perspective on the cross, at least one part of it. Look, we could preach the cross up, down, left, and right for probably 50, 80, 100 years and just never get... Never be out of material. It's so deep. all right. But what I want to do is I want to take a look at from the perspective. That's why we picked behold and behold the crucifixion, how people were witnessing this and how people were seeing it. So if you're in Mark 15, I'm sorry, I'm a little under the weather. My voice is a little growlier than usual. It's not me trying to be dramatic for the theme. It's trying to just deal with some sinus nonsense, which I've never had in my life, but um, got a little thing going on. So I'm going to pray because I need help. I'm also going to pray because you need help. I don't know if you knew that but uh, you do. So I'm going to pray for us all and then we'll get going. So Jesus, we just uh, ahead of time, we just thank you for what you're going to do. Anytime we crack your word, we're excited to hear from you. Um, This is about you. This is for you. This was written about you. Um, And so we, I just pray that this would cause us to worship you in a new way to see you um, even more high and lifted up and not because necessarily the heights that you would go to for us, but that the depths that you would descend to get us and that, that this picture of the cross is, is not about the lifting up of a king, though that's certainly what it was. It was about a king that came down into the mess of the world to do the only thing that could be done to save his people, and that was to be sacrificed on their behalf. And so I just pray that you would open up your word to us. I ask for an extra dose of empowerment. Holy Spirit, just enable me to teach, enable every person that's here to learn, even those that came here and didn't think they wanted to learn. Would you just cause them to walk in your statutes, cause them to reflect on what you've done, not on what they've done. Jesus, be high and lifted up. This is all for your name. This is all for your fame in your son's name. In Jesus name we pray. Amen. And so Mark 15 is where we're going to be. I kind of took a look at the gospels and it's ironic because Mark is the shorter one. And yet he's got probably the most detail on the crucifixion, but you need to know this. I'm going to be talking about a lot of stuff that you're going to be like, that's not in the Bible. Okay? Some of you, are just going to freak you out, but you should only say things that are in the Bible. Okay? We don't have a lot of detail on the crucifixion. Let me tell you why. It'd be like me saying, hey, I got up on Monday and I went to work. Does that suffice? Do you guys know what I did in the morning? Yeah, did you, know that, did you need to know that I walked outside my front door and locked it? That I walked to my garage, opened the garage door, turned on the car, or the motorcycle in my case? Right? Put my helmet on, put my gloves on. Pulled onto the first street, pulled onto the... Some of those details are just assumed. You're like, you told us, you went to work, we get it. And in the Bible, a lot of times there is some of these, these details are not necessarily penned because in those days, when you say a guy was crucified, they're like, oh yeah, I know what that means. They'd all seen it. They'd all witnessed it. They were like, I know exactly what that word means. We don't though. A lot of times we don't. We hear crucifixion and, and we've been so far removed from some of the actuality of the brutality that exists on the cross. And so what I've done is, as I've done in the past, I've gone to extra-biblical accounts, okay? And part of God's common grace is that he allows us to learn more about him from things even outside scripture, okay? And so we're taking a look at some of the, hist- histor- some of the historicity of the cross, Okay. Some of the historicity. So if you're wondering, I can show you the resources, I can show you where I got this. It's deeply rooted in actual history. It's not an affront. It's just when the Bible says, crucified, there's a lot that came with that. And we'll see a bit of it in Mark, but not as much as we'll go into. And so I hope that just sets sort of this tone again, that we need to to understand some of these details to really sort of understand the brutality, but not just the brutality of the cross from Jesus' perspective, but from that of those that were witnessing the crucifixion at the time. And so keep in mind, the people that were witnessing this believed, as Josephus, the ancient first century Jewish historian, said that this was most, the most wretched of deaths. Think of the worst way to die. It's worse than that. This, Josephus said, was the most wretched of deaths. Cicero, the ancient Greek philosopher, said that decent Roman citizens, Roman citizens, shouldn't even, if you're decent Roman, you shouldn't even speak of crucifixion. It was that disgusting. Orthodox Bible-believing Jews believed, as it says in Leviticus, that those who are hung from a tree are a cursed of God. They believe that this is the crowd with the historians in mind with their own scriptures our scriptures in mind if you are hung from a tree and that's where crucifixion began and it went to a stake and then it went to a couple different forms of the T cross that that is someone lifted up for public humiliation that is a cursed of God. That's not spoken of any other form of punishment. Those hung from a tree, as it says in Leviticus 21, verses 22 through 23, if a man has committed a sin deserving of death and you hang him on a tree, he who is hanged is accursed of God. And that's what's about to take place. So disgusting is the details of crucifixion that we invented a word that derives from it. Our word excruciating. You say, I'm in excruciating pain. What you are saying in the original ancient language is that this pain is so bad, it's like that from the cross. Excruciating means from the cross. That is the pain that Jesus would endure. And again, so we set our sights as this, this, this group of, of Jewish passerbyers that, that, that Jerusalem would be filled for the festivals and the Passovers and for festivities. They would, they would worship him or they would, they would sing praises as he came into Jerusalem. And then they would scream, crucify him shortly afterwards. And they would send him to the cross. And a lot has happened. We've got enough to get through. And so I want to dive right in. We'll start at verse 6 in chapter 15. And you need to know, right as we get on this, you need to know that crucifixion was not invented by the Romans, but it was perfected by them. It was not invented by the Romans, but it was perfected by them. And the the methods varied, and they changed by soldier. Each soldier and, and the soldiers in his charge could choose how they wanted to play with the victim, and it was often a game. It was, a game, it, was, it was a game of tension. How long can we keep them alive in the worst amount of pain? That was the tension. You don't want them to die too early, and you don't want them to not feel enough pain. So the tension that the, the soldiers were constantly testing and controlling and trying to figure out, like the Nazis with their sick, sick experiments, would test and control to see how long can we keep them alive in as much pain as possible. And that was up to the soldiers. And so it just played to the sadistic mindset of the individual soldier performing the crucifixion. And it would last anywhere from three to four hours to about nine days. When was the last time you did something for nine days? Straight. Right? When was the last time you tried to stay awake for two? Right? Nine days. History records, at times, crucifixions would go out as long as nine days. The victim would, of course, go in and out of consciousness, severe blood loss, hard of breathing. It was publicly, it was the most obviously shameful thing that you could, imagine walking into the Thousand Oaks Mall naked. Okay? You're not on a cross, but you, how humiliating is that? Think about that. Just, just think for one second, someone walks into Thousand Oaks Mall naked, just look at the crowd. Think of the crowd. How do they react to that? They yell, they snicker, they hold their kids' eyes, right? Every bit, and if not more so, shameful. Some people were crucified, history records, at eye level. Across not much taller than this one. So that when they lined the street into the city, as the Romans hung people on the way into the city, people would walk by at eye level with those being shamed. Some dead, some alive, some dead. If it was a woman, sometimes she was hung backwards so that men wouldn't see her face. Face to the stipe. So shameful was crucifixion. The burial afterwards was rarely decent, and that was only after the vultures and the dogs had their way with the carcass. This was not just simply capital punishment. We've had a lot of argument in America about capital punishment, humane or not humane, taking an injection and falling asleep. This was beyond capital punishment. This was state-sponsored terrorism. This was torture at its highest degree to shame those who'd committed crime and to scare those outside of the cross into submission. That's what terror is, the use of fear to get your way and people were accustomed to seeing crucifixion unlike us which is likely the reason for few Bibles, five, few details in the bible but behold scripture will give us some details on this crucifixion and so we'll pick it up in verse 6 i don't know if it's a super great starting spot but we'll just jump right into it. it says now the feast he was accustomed to releasing now at the feast he was accustomed to releasing this is pontius pilate one prisoner to them whom they requested and there was one named barabbas he was a modern day terrorist He was an anarchist. He was a terrorist who was chained with his fellow rebels. They had committed murder in the rebellion. Then the multitude crying aloud began to ask him to do just what he had always done for them. But Pilate answered them saying, do you want me to release to you the king of the Jews? For he knew that the chief priests had handed, handed him over because of envy. But the chief priests stirred up the crowd so that he should rather release Barabbas to them. Verse 12, Pilate answered them and said to them again, What then do you want me to do with him, whom you call King of the Jews? So they cried out again, Crucify him. Then Pilate said to them, Why? What evil has he done? But they cried out all the more, Crucify him. Jesus himself stood before the Sanhedrin and said what? tell me what I've done. Tell me what I've done. What did they say? Oh, you healed the sick. Oh, you befriended the outcast. What did they say? Said you made yourself out to be God. People say, well, Jesus never said he was God. the people around him sir, thought he did. You made yourself out to be God. That's why they delivered Jesus up. And it says they were in envy But they cried out all the more crucify him. So Pilate wanting to gratify the crowd. There's a lot of exhortation right there. How many of us spend all day trying to gratify the crowd? Well, Jesus wants me to do this, but all my friends say. So wanting to gratify the crowd released Barabbas to them and he delivered Jesus after he had scourged him to be crucified. See, we blow right past the word scourged. Let's camp there for a second. As the people gathered, they gathered generally in a, court, in, a, in a court area, okay? Some of you maybe live in dorms. It has an open court area. Buildings built up around this sort of inner court, and there was a bloody post in the middle of the court, probably about six feet tall. It had been used so many times. You couldn't even see the wood anymore. It was likely black from bloodstains. Black. Pieces of flesh still stuck to it. Nails left over, rusted. The area around it decimated. Bloodied, disgusting. Flies and wasps. It smelled like feces and urine and blood. And they see this post standing in the middle of the courtyard. And they would, what they saw is they saw Jesus dragged to it. And they saw him stripped naked. They saw his hands put together. And they would tie your hands above the post. Or as high as possible. Exposing the largest muscle groups in your body. And so unlike some of the movies that depict it here. History would argue it was here. And Jesus was there naked. Against this bloodied pulp. And then the crowd would see two lictors come, and these were the bodyguards. These are the royal bodyguards, guys you don't mess with. They made the seals back then. These guys came out, and they, they each held what was known as a flagrum. First and foremost, it was a handle, and it had leather strips that came from it. Le- as if that wasn't bad enough. Leather strips had a few things attached to it, one being iron balls. Like a butcher tenderizes meat before he cuts it. That's what the iron balls were for. Then there was hooks of sheep bone and metal. Hooks. This isn't your average whip. This is intended to tenderize the skin. Grip the skin. Rip the skin. Not just lash it. And both lictors came out. And so you've got Jesus tied naked here. You've got two lictors. I would venture to say, my opinion, they're probably both right-handed. Probably rare that you could have a duo right-handed and left-handed. And so, as Jesus is here, is exposing his lats, exposing his back, his his uh, hamstrings, his calves. The lictor to this side with his flagrum would come from this side, and the straps would wrap around. They would grip, and then they would rip. I would venture to say the guy on this side is right-handed as well. But notice he can't come from here. If you're right-handed and you have to go from this side, how do you strike? You strike like this. Now the straps are moving down Jesus' back. Now they are shredding. They are dicing his back. And it grips and it rips. History records at times chunks if not entire ribs flew from guys being scourged. Flew. All the major muscle groups exposed as that wrapped, ripped around and gripped as the two lictors went to town. A lot of men died on that pole. Never even saw the cross. Didn't make it. Bled out. This was the legal preliminary to execution. This was legal. This was not behind the scenes. This was in front of the crowd. Behold, the crucifixion's begun. And the man is being scourged. So brutal that scourging, scourging exempted women, Roman senators, and soldiers except for deserters. Women could not be scourged. Roman senators could never be scourged. And soldiers could not be scourged unless they were deserters. This was the weakening of the victim to collapse almost death as just stage one of their end. And so what they saw was a man bloodied to a pulp, beaten, whipped, gripped, ripped. His back, his buttocks, his hamstrings, his calves, his ankles, his neck, his arms, shredded. Shredded. Blood loss was immense. And this is what they saw, but what they couldn't see, what they couldn't see in the physical was that the blood loss was setting stage for what's known as cardiogenic shock. This is where Jesus' heart could not keep up. This was the earliest stage of Jesus' heart not being able to pump enough blood to the body for what it wanted to do. Jesus' heart was going into an intense first stage of shock, pumping as much as it could as it lost blood to get it out to the extremities to try to heal that which was being shredded. There's just not enough blood. There's not enough pump. And so they could not see that Jesus' heart couldn't pump enough blood as his body needed, setting the stage ultimately, quite possibly, for cardiogenic shock. And so it says Jesus, after they had scourged him to be crucified, verse 16, then the soldiers led him away into the hall called Praetorium, and they called together the whole garrison, and they clothed him with a purple, which is royalty, and twisted a crown of thorns, twisted a crown of thorns, put it on his head and began to salute him. So the thorns start to tear through the cranial skin. Jesus is now suffering from lacerations quite literally from head to toe. He is bleeding from every inch of his body. And they stand there saluting him, mocking him. King, King, Salute's a sign of honor. Comes from the medieval days when a knight would raise his, his mask on his helmet like this to see the other knight because the eyes they thought were the windows to the soul. It was the ultimate form of respect. I was in the Marine Corps. They still teach you how to salute properly. Ultimate, highest form of respect. And they said, come on, king. Come on. Bleeding from head to tail. And they'd put a robe on him, a purple one. I said, come on, you're a king. Come on. Come on. I want you to think about what his body is doing with that robe at that moment. What does your body do when it's been wounded and you cover it to so that gauze? It starts to heal to it, doesn't it? It starts to take that on and say, protect me, and it holds on to it. And so it starts to heal to the garment. It says, hail, king of the Jews and they struck him on the head. You ever been punched? You ever been punched? You ever been punched in the face? It hurts the guy punching, let alone the guy getting punched, I can tell you that. Jesus is not only bleeding from head to toe, he's now suffering severe contusions to his face, which means the heart has to pump even more blood to attempt to recover from it. And they're punching him. He's already been scourged. He can barely stand at this point, and they hit him. Come on, King. Come on. Came in on your donkey all cool. And they're pummeling his face. These are guys that know how to punch, these are guys that have been to war. And so they strike him on his head. With a reed, as well, and they spat on him. You ever been spit on? You ever been spit on? There's just something about it. It just it. You've seen it in movies, right? Isn't that like the ultimate form of rebellion? Just and they spat on him. They scourged him. They sucker punched him. They hit him with a stick. They saluted him, saying, come on, king. And they just spat on him. And Jesus stood there. And Jesus took it. Remember in the garden, he said, when they pulled out the sword and cut off the ear of the servant of the high priest, he said, what makes, what, what makes you think I can't call down 12 legions of angels right now? He said that to his disciples. About 72,000 angels in the garden before his betrayal or during his betrayal. He said, look, you kidding me? I could get out of this if I wanted to. And Jesus stands there. Bleeding head to toe, his heart. Just trying to pump blood. His back now healing to the robe. And bowing the knee, they worshiped him. And when they had mocked him, they took the purple off of him. And they tore it back off and they re-exposed all the wounds that he had from the scourging. And they pull that thing off and skin comes with it and blood begins to pour out again. They've reopened all his wounds. And Jesus took it. And they put his own clothes on him and they led him out to crucify him. It says this, verse 21, then they compelled a certain man, Simon a Cyrean, the father of Alexander and Rufus, as he was coming out of the country and passing by to bear his cross. See, what they saw was Jesus carrying the crossbar, the panabulum. It's a stipe and a panabulum. And, and contrary to how it was depicted in the, in the film, Okay? History generally records that the man did not carry an entire cross. He carried the panabellum, the crossbar, and he was strapped to it. He was tied to it. Now keep in mind, they put his clothes back on him, and then they put a panabellum on his back. It's about 100 pounds. About 100, bo- 100 pounds at the nape of your neck. Carry it across here. The man had just been scourged. They tie you to the crossbar. And then they have you walk the Via Della Rosa. And I've been on the Via Della Rosa. It's not a cakewalk. Israel is hilly. Jerusalem is hilly. It's rocky. They didn't have great blacktop back then. And they had convinced him to bear Jesus' cross. Why? Other accounts record, other gospel accounts record. Jesus did what? He fell, didn't he? How do you brace yourself when you're strapped to a crossbar? You can't. And so people are watching as Jesus is coming up the Via De La Rosa, strapped to his own crossbar at about 100 pounds after being scourged, after being punched, beaten with a stick, mocked and spat upon with a crown of thorns, bleeding literally from head to toe, strapped with a 100-pound bar, and he falls. And the people witness another humiliating stage on the way to execution as Jesus falls, unable to brace himself. And so they see a man compelled to pick it up for him. But what they couldn't see is the likely result of that powerful impact as Jesus fell. This had to have caused a deep chest contusion and very likely an aortic aneurysm which is just a localized, blood-filled, balloon-like abnormality of the heart, an aortic aneurysm. And so now his body is working even harder than it has before as he suffers this deep contusion from falling with 100 pounds on his back. And Jesus hits the ground. And Simon picks up his crossbar and it says, and they brought him, and we, we glaze right by that, but history would tell you that this was generally a military guard that would bring him. It was headed by a centurion, one who, which would hold the sign of the name of the criminal and their crime. Look, in the sickest, most disgusting way, this is just a citywide Parade. This is, in the sickest way, just a citywide parade. There were no fire trucks. There was no candy being thrown out. This is the parading of criminals to Golgotha, the place of the skull. And I've been to the hill that they believe is Golgotha because it looks like a skull. This is the parading of the criminals. Utter, complete humiliation. And the military guard would stand posted until the entire guard was sure of death. Every single guard would have to verify the death of the criminal. And these guys were professional executioners. They knew how to get the job done. And so it says, they brought him, that's Jesus, to the place Golgotha, which is translated place of the skull. Then they gave him wine mixed with myrrh to drink, which was in the day used as an incense or a medicine, and it's by law that they could give this to him. It wasn't a sign of grace. But he did not take it. And when they crucified him, they divided his garments, casting lots for them to determine what every man should take. Now it was the third hour, and they crucified him. And what they saw in terms of the crucifixion was a few things in terms of his hands you need to know that there was permanent stipes there was the permanent upright bars of the crosses outside the city those existed at all times and then the man simply carried his own crossbar those existed and they stayed and they were permanent and they were reused you think jesus got a brand new set of wood no way Many, many men died on the same wood that Jesus did. He carried his own crossbar to the place of the skull where there were stipes waiting for him, either upright in their hole or laying down. And what happens is that they would then affix the crossbar to the stipe, Or if the man was still carrying his own, they would throw him down on it like this after being scourged. They would affix the crossbar. Five to seven inch square shafted iron spikes would be driven through the wrists. Five to seven inches, square shafted. Not round, square, through the wrists. Some of the most sensitive nerves in the body. I got a couple here, the median, the ulnar, Etc. right through here, not the hands. Hands couldn't support the weight. Go through the wrist, between the bone. That's how you hang a man. And then he would be lifted or affixed onto the stipe. If it was a low one, it would be easy for soldiers. Sometimes it was higher up and they would use forks or ladders. Whether they would lay him down and then pull the cross up and it would fall into its foundation, or they would actually lift the man and affix it from a standing position. Either way, I want you to think about as people watched Jesus' back continue to bleed out every step of the way. And this was just another crucifixion. When it came to his feet, the people would see as, as the soldiers made sure that one foot was over the other, but there was no platform. So you weren't standing like this. Feet had to be nailed like this. And it would contort your body in such a way that breathing was near impossible. Some historians debate that they would put chairs just to give a little bit of relief, again, so that people would last longer. But keep in mind, his feet had to be flat on that stipe. They would drill those, they would pound those nails between the second and third metatarsals, the most more sensitive nerves in the body. The contortion of the body made breathing difficult, especially exhaling. Lifting yourself to breathe would scrape the wounds that were inflicted on the scourging. Every time you would pull up, every time you would sink down, it would rub against the cross. What the people saw in terms of the condition was the bodily functions of the person were almost completely lost. They were often lost due to shock, blood, sweat, tears, feces, urine, all sat at the base of the cross. The people would keep their distance because it smelled so bad. Insects would burrow into the wounds Insects would burrow into the eyes, the ears, the nose of the victims as they became a carcass. Birds would feast on exposed flesh. Crowds would gather and mock and wager and spit. And Jesus didn't return it to them. Family would come and they would endure, as was the case with Jesus. And so what they saw was a horrific display the most brutal execution ever invented by man. And so it says, and they crucified him. And the inscription of his accusation was written above the king of the Jews. With him, they also crucified, this verse 27, two robbers, one on his right and the other on his left. I love this. So the scripture was fulfilled. The whole Old Testament was about Jesus. So the scripture was fulfilled, which says, and he was numbered with the transgressors. And those who passed by blasphemed him. They just heckled him on the way to the market to pick up fruit. And Jesus hung there, bloodied, gasping for air. His heart pumping, trying to heal the wounds that were inflicted upon it. And so the scripture was fulfilled. And those who passed by blasphemed him, wagging their heads and saying, aha, you who destroy the temple and built it in three days, save yourself, come down from the cross. Likewise, the chief priests, all the religious people got up in there also, mocking among themselves with the scribes, said he saved others, himself he cannot save. He saved others, but he can't save himself. They were close. He saved others, but in this moment, Jesus wouldn't save himself. Verse 32, let the Christ, the king of Israel, descend now from the cross that we may see and believe. And guess what that makes them? If Jesus responds, guess what that makes them? That makes them God hey God, just come down, just do what I want. Devil did the same thing. Just do it, look, just turn it into bread. You'll be fine. Just do what I want because then you're above God at that moment and Jesus didn't. Save yourself, come down from the cross. Let the Christ, the King of Israel, descend now from the cross. Even those who were crucified with him reviled him. In verse 33, it says, Now, when the sixth hour had come, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, saying, Eloi, Eloi, Lama Sabakhtani, which is translated, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And so the people that stood around watching saw as day went to night. And what they see is a man on a cross at the edge of death screaming at the sky who didn't respond as, ever, as, as many other criminals would have done. He said nothing. And then he looks up, he says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And for some people, it's just another crucifixion and it's a madman hanging from a stick screaming to the clouds. But what they couldn't see was what Jesus had prayed in the garden before. Jesus had prayed this. He said, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Take this cup away from me. He didn't say take this cross away from me. You notice that? He didn't say take this beating away from me. You notice that? He didn't say, Take this scourging away from me. Did you notice that? He didn't say, Take this crown of thorns from me. He said, Take this cup from me. Nevertheless, not what I will, but what you will. The cup here is the cup of God's wrath. See, the people looking at him saw a man dying on a cross, yelling at the sky in his last moments. What they couldn't see is that Jesus, as 2 Corinthians says, was becoming your sin. Jesus was literally and metaphorically becoming your sin. He was becoming the physical manifestation of your sin. Everything you've ever and will ever do wrong. In that moment, Jesus was, hear my words, Jesus was becoming it. Physically, We must never put Jesus above what he did in that moment. He was the spotless lamb. He could never be touched by sin. In this moment, he became sin because he was spotless. He was the only one that could shoulder it. And where they just saw a man crying out to the sky, what they didn't see is that the full wrath of the almighty God was being poured out on Jesus in this moment. God the Father, his son, becoming sin. Turned from his son. And Jesus says, why are you forsaking me? Where are you going? Because God is light. And in light there can be no darkness. And so that eternal communion. In the trinity. Perfect, eternal, holy, loving, giving communion was broken. In that moment as Jesus became sin. He was disconnected from the father and he says, why have you forsaken me? He became sin. He who knew no sin was made to be sin. Jesus was becoming our sin on the cross and God, the father was ready to pour out his cup of wrath. That's why you see mean, angry God in the Old Testament, and you're like, I love pacifier Jesus in the New Testament. Everything's kumbaya after we flip to Matthew. It's great. That's because the anger of God often displayed in active wrath in the Old Testament was poured out on Jesus, and now we live under passive wrath. Praise Jesus. The reason God doesn't show up and strike people dead right now is because his anger has been absorbed by Jesus on the cross, when He became our sin, and so Jesus looked up to the Father and says, "Why have you forsaken me?" And God stores up, has been storing up, continues to store, up, pours out all His wrath. And you'll notice in Revelation who pours out the saucers of God's wrath? God the Father? No, Jesus. The Bible says the father judges no one. He has committed all judgment to the son. People say, I, I, I don't want to judge. I want to be like, Jesus Jesus judges. Jesus judges. Jesus is the one that judge. Why? Because he's the only one. He's the only one that can sympathize and empathize with every single thing you go through. He's our great high priest. This is not in any way to demean the father or the Holy Spirit, but the father didn't die on a cross for you. The Holy Spirit didn't die on a cross for you. It would almost be unjust that they judge you having no comprehension, though they are God and all knowing, having never been tempted in every way yet without sin as Jesus was. And so of course Jesus gets to do the judging because Jesus himself was the one who was judged. And so Jesus now judges and in Revelation, Jesus pours out the wrath of God. It says he's come to tread the winepress and the fury of almighty God. And Jesus has every right to do that because of the cross. And so he says, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And so the crowd may see a man in final moments yelling to the sky as people come and they yell at him and they mock him, as we'll see. This is some of those who stood by, verse 35, when they heard that said, look, he's calling for Elijah. Then some ran and filled a sponge full of sour wine, put it on a reed. And offered it to him to drink. By the way, they've done recent uncoveries. And they've seen that, that all generally near the crucifixion sites were the public bathrooms. And bathrooms in the day were just simply kind of like benches. With holes at the top. Okay, and holes in the front. And as people would sit to go to the bathroom, there was no toilet paper. So there were servants that would run around the public restrooms with a reed and a sponge. And they would clean underneath the person. And it's very likely that when this person ran to go get a reed and a sponge, they just went down the hill to the public bathroom and grabbed a reed and a sponge and shoved it into Jesus' face. And the last thing he smelled and tasted on this earth... Was that bathroom. And they mocked him. And they shoved that in his face. Why not you come down? And they put it on a reed and offered to him to drink, saying, let him alone. Let us see if Elijah will come to take him down. And Jesus cried out with a loud voice and breathed, his last. And Jesus cried out right before his last breath. And I would submit to you that while most people died of asphyxiation, that was not the case with Jesus. As he yelled, he still had the ability to yell out before he breathed his last. Most people died of suffocation. Not always. I would submit to you that that was not the case with Jesus. And he breathed his last and God's wrath had been poured out on him. That's why God's not angry with you anymore. That's why when you come to him with your sin and you feel so ashamed, he says, I've got this is covered. That's why I, I imagine when Jesus said, repent, he was smiling. He's like, don't you know? I've got it covered. And we feel so gross and we feel disgusted. And I pray that this message doesn't make you feel gross and disgusted but just shows you the extent to the depths. My father said at best, a minister of 40 years, he says it's not the height of the gospel that saves you, it's the depths. It's not how high and mighty God is that saves you, it's how low he came to get you. We must never put Jesus above how low he came on the cross. To that depth to save you. To that depth, the gospel saves you. And then the veil of the temple was torn. And there was no longer a big curtain for the religious people to say, you stay on that side. I go on that side. That's where I belong because I work at the church. You don't, you're disgusting. You let me know what business you need to do for God. I'll talk to him for you. And that curtain was torn. Jesus says, no, no longer. It's no longer about that divide. And it says the earth shaked and it says rocks split. Creation could not hold back the fury that was being poured out on Jesus in this moment. All sin, past, present, and future, being poured out on Jesus as your sin. Whether you accept him or not, you need to know that he took it for you. And God poured out his wrath on Jesus. So God's not angry. And in this moment, two things happen, propitiation and expiation. Bible nerd words that people use to to. to, to feel good about themselves behind a pulpit. But propitiation and expiation. Propitiation means the removal of divine wrath. God has every right. Look, this doesn't preach well in America. God has every right to be angry with you. Every right to be angry with you. The Bible should have ended in Genesis 3. God creates everything. It's perfect. There's marriage. Genesis 3, whole thing's over. We sin. He's got every right to be angry. I think right now, if I put a video up on the screen of everything you've done wrong in your life, you would say, I I guess he's got a little right to be angry. Right? Let's just do a video of last week. Right? Is that enough material? Probably. Even just the thoughts in your head. God has every right to be angry with you. And on the cross, that removal of divine wrath took place via propitiation. But that's not where it ended. Because just because he's not angry with you, doesn't mean he's good with you. And that's expiation. That's where a relationship has been mended. Right? And so it's one thing to say, all right, fine. You know what? I'm not angry with her anymore. That's fine. It's all in the past. I love Jesus. All right. I'm forgiven. You're like, oh, so are you guys good? Oh, heck no. I don't hang out with her. It's no way. Are you kidding me? You see what she said about me? Right? You may say, look, I'm not angry with her anymore, but I ain't good with her. Right? We've done that, guys and girls alike. God says, look, I'm no longer angry with you. And with expiation, he says, and now I'm good with you. We tear that veil down. We'll tear that curtain down. Come into my presence. Be with me. I love you. And so propitiation and expiation, as the earth shaked and the rocks split, verse 39, so so when the centurion who stood opposite him saw that. So the crowd sees this. That's how big that curtain was, by the way. A curtain tears in Newberry Park. No one sees it. This curtain tears. People are like, what? From like miles away. The thing was monstrous. Huge symbol of the fact that you don't get to be in God's presence, but we do. And God tears that thing in half as Jesus is put to death. He saw that and he cried out, and breathed his last, he said, truly, truly, this man was the son of God. See, some people saw this as just another crucifixion. They'd seen it before, they would see more again. Many men had died on those crosses and it didn't change a thing for anyone. Some people just saw it as one more kook who claimed he was God hanging from a cross and now he's dead, good riddance. Maybe some of you have heard the details of that tonight and you're like, yeah, you might have your history. Fine, It might be all right. It might be okay, cool. Doesn't really change anything. But some people saw it for what it really was. Some people saw that this was creator God. Hanging dead on a cross. Hanging dead on a cross. But here's the good news. He didn't smile the whole sermon, he's smiling now. This causes us not to be depressed, this causes us not to sulk, this causes us to worship. This causes us to be even more excited about Easter. This causes us to be even more excited about Monday morning, if that's possible. That we go home tonight, that we wake up tomorrow, and all sin, past, present, and future, was literally put on Jesus, and the anger and the wrath of God the Father was poured out on him so that that veil could be torn, that that curtain could be torn, and we could be ushered into the presence. Because you see, when that community was broken in, in the triune God, and for the first and the only time that community was broken, it was so God's people could be inserted. He said, why have you forsaken me? That was so we could spend eternity on the other side of that curtain with God for eternity and it's going to cause you, I pray, to see communion entirely differently. Here's why. We do communion every Sunday here on Sunday nights. I don't want you to just pick up a way for a little piece of cracker and some grape juice. This causes us to worship and it causes us to commune because Jesus' body was pummeled as our sin. Do you get that? Do you get that that beating took place because God would put the sin on him and destroy it on Jesus, God would turn from and put to death your sin. And so Jesus' body was pummeled as our sin, and Jesus' blood was poured as our solution. So what you hold is in remembrance of Jesus, his body, which was pummeled as your sin, and the blood that was poured out as the solution to your sin. See, the cross, the crucifixion, is where God's wrath and his love intersect. God's wrath and his love intersect on the cross. Right in the middle, center mass. And after all that blood loss, after what could have very well been cardio shock, after a deep chest contusion from falling on the Via Dolorosa, after what could have very have well been an aortic aneurysm, the pulling of clothes on and off as the blood continues to pour and the heart begins to work even harder and harder, but it can't keep up. We see Jesus yell out and take his last, I don't believe he died of suffocation on the cross where Jesus' wrath and his love intersect. I would submit to you that Jesus, after all that he endured, a sleepless night, praying in the garden as though it was blood, which was called hematidrosis, which leaves your skin extra sensitive, the scourging, the beating, the pummeling, the falling, the contusion, the aneurysm, the blood loss, the shock, I would submit to you that on the cross, Jesus died medically and metaphorically of a broken heart. His heart gave out. It couldn't keep up any longer. And his heart just stopped. And he said, no man takes my life. I lay it down. It wasn't those square-shaped nails that kept Jesus on the cross. It was his love for you. Behold the crucifixion. Creator God hanging from a cross. Body pummeled as your sin. Blood poured out. Pure, perfect, holy blood poured out as the solution. Amen? Let's pray. God, I just ask that this heavy message would not cause us to go into a time of depression. It would not cause us to do what we want to do, which is make this about us. Look what I did to God. Look what God did for us. Not what we did to God. Jesus, but what you allowed to be done to yourself. We're building up to Easter and I'm excited, but we've got to get by the cross. We've got to see it from those who saw the crucifixion take place and all the bloody details. We have to be presented with the decision whether or not it's just another dead guy on a cross or if this is God put to death as our sin. And so I pray, Holy Spirit, as as you tussle with people in their hearts, those that haven't made a decision, that once and for all you would pull them over and you would say, this is how much I love you. It's not the heights to which I ascend that saves you. It's the depths to which Jesus descended to save us. Jesus, the cross is a brutal reality, a brutal reality. And so, as we come in to take communion, I just pray that we would be conscious of that reality, but we would be worshipful in our thankfulness that you, you lived the life that we should have lived, only to die the death that we deserved, so that the curtain could be torn and we could spend eternity with you. I pray that you would just stir in the hearts of your people tonight. For those that already know you, that they would have a reinvigorated passion for how precious you are and for what you did. And for those that came here with with questions, for those that came here not knowing or being on the fence, would you stir in them? Would you show them that that was the ultimate act of love that you performed on the cross to serve your glory in the end, to defeat death, to make a spectacle of demons, Satan, sin, and death. Jesus, you've overcome it. I believe it. I pray everyone here tonight believes that, that if this whole thing ends tonight, we spend eternity with you. Jesus, that's our goal. That's our hope. That's our faith, is that, God, you came to earth to die for us. And we thank you. And now we're excited to worship you on your throne because it didn't end on the cross, as we'll see next week. Jesus, you're on a throne right now. Please receive these worships as incense and fragrance to your worthy praise. In Jesus' name, amen.